Hey friends, Ashton here. Welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I hope you are doing well. We've got an old friend joining us today. It's been a few years uh, since he joined us. His first book, Coming Clean, uh, was a beautiful read and uh, transformative for so many people I know. His next book comes out early 2020 in January, The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love that Reorders a life. And uh, man, are we not all here constantly having the Richard Rohr conversation of order, disorder, and reorder? And uh, he's a brother. He's a fellow fly fisherman and uh, a great, beautiful soul. I love the way this guy sees the world, and I love how he is uh, learning what it means to wake up and be human. And so with that being said, how was that for a bio? Was that okay, Seth? It was killer. Did that work? <laughs> <laughs> that was killer. Yeah, excuse the cough. You're that, good. That was awesome. You're good. Um, man, well, where do we begin? I, I think maybe some of us that are here maybe weren't here the first time you were here. Um, so when you start and talk about your work in the world, where do you begin? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, I love your show. I love what you're doing. I love the way you're thinking. And, and more than that, I love what you're reading. Um, I love readers. Uh, readers make me <laughs> very happy, people who read well and deeply. Um, yeah, so normally when I start uh, with my story, particularly the story of sobriety, I tell folks, you know, my, my journey has been a long journey to figure out what it means uh, to have your loves disordered, your attachments disordered. Um, to learn what it means to be addicted to something and then to find your way out of it through a sort of reordering your life, reordering your attachments. So for me, that process began um, back when my son uh, was, was born. Um, he was born with, uh, you know, everything looked good at first, but about six months in, um, he came down with an illness and that illness attacked his esophageal system and he began to lose weight. And around his first birthday, we were sent to a children's hospital in Arkansas. And in that time, uh, the doctors sort of looked at him and said, man, this kid's an anomaly. We don't really know what to do. And, and his health continued to decline. And at one point, a doctor came in the room and said, we don't know what to do other than make him comfortable. And that was the moment at which I called and uh, ordered up a Nalgene bottle of gin, which was delivered to my room by a loving and caring soul. Um, and, and from that point on, uh, for about the next year, year and a half, I simply drank the pain away. Uh, I'd probably had a functional drinking problem before that. You know, I was, I was the kind of person who can, who could and can hold a lot of liquor. Um, and so I, I, I likely had what would be considered uh, an addiction issue before, but it wasn't until that moment that I sort of decided uh, life hurts too much. I'm going to drink the pain away. Um, yeah, so my son, um, he did make it. They, they tried one more thing, and that one thing worked and saved him. We were released from the hospital, and then I began uh, the process of drinking myself away for a while and then waking up and learning what it means to live the sober life. So 
um, yeah, that's those are kind of the beginnings of my story. I think that's where we left off last time I was with you. It is. That's exactly where we left off. And uh, just to the listeners, my apologies. Every time I record a podcast two days after Christmas, the whole neighborhood turns on their leaf blowers. So I apologize if you hear that in the background. Um, yes, that is where we left off. And uh, But then you've got this, I mean, I don't want to call this an encore because the book of waking up is not that. But in some way, it is like, the following step. It's like one awareness leads to another awareness. Awareness is the great predecessor of all things. And so I guess our conversation today is going to really revolve around this book that you've put into the world that comes out in January. Um, Tell me, like, why this book after Coming Clean? Yeah, Coming Clean is sort of the epiphany. I think awareness was the right word. For me, it was sort of an epiphany. It It was a moment where I... Uh, was able to uh, wake up and look at my life and say, oh, I have a significant uh, problem. I have a drinking problem. And that that awareness led to other awarenesses, and particularly the awareness that throughout my life, I've always had a difficulty when crises of faith sort of come up, right? So like I needed my son to be healed and he wasn't healed. And that was a moment of faith. That was a pain moment. I drank that away. When I was a kid, I needed to be healed of my asthma. I wasn't healed. Um, and, and so even the sickness of my son was sort of a reminder of that. It was a reminder of the fact that the, the abiding present God, air quotes, was neither abiding nor present to me. And so that was sort of the, the epiphanal moment where I went out to search for God. And that's really what coming clean is about. And, and the culmination of that book is, is, is really talking about how to clear myself of anger, how to clear uh, uh, hatred, how to clear doubt, how to clear um, these moments, these crises of faith and make space for the actual abiding God to come and be with me. Um, and, and, and through the process really of practicing forgiveness. But that's only uh, that is only one step. It's only the first step. And as I kind of walked out of the the coming clean uh, book writing process, which was really just the first 90 days of my sobriety, as I began to really walk it out, um, I just started to to uncover sort of the layers, um, the layers of, of what it takes to actually live a sober life that goes beyond just drinking or not drinking. Um, and so I really, with, with the book of Waking Up, I really wanted to share sort of the process, the things that we can sort of walk through to identify problems and walk into a true life of inner sobriety. No doubt. And I think, you know, the journey that you take the reader on is kind of through these, these five great questions of constantly getting to the thing underneath the thing of our pain. Um, and so if it's cool with you, I, I, I'd, I'd love to just kind of walk through briefly these five questions um, yeah. as I have some questions about them and just kind of hear your thoughts and insight on it. And let me tell yeah, you sure. guys, this book, um, it's such a good page turner. You know, it's, um, it's, they're almost little essays on, on throughout the whole book about these questions. And so it's a, uh, it, it's, it's a powerful, deep, deep book, but it's one that you can also, um, come back to, you can chew on it, set it down, come back to it. Uh, and you can also just go right through it. So kudos to you. Uh, it's yeah, a killer work. So you, the first, first kind of question, first step is really what's the problem? 
Um, and I'm going to let you kind of walk with this a bit. But in short, you, you come back over and over to we are coded for pleasure. Um, and you could have named this book something about whiz bang because that is your that is the word of this book. Um, so, <laughs> but let's talk about this about the the problem being. Uh, I mean, I guess we either avoid the pain or move towards pleasure. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the idea of identifying the problem and really delving in deep to that, you know, question, what is the problem? Because the problem to me is not, do you drink or do you not drink? In other words, if I can just quit drinking, uh, am I sober? And the answer to that has to be no. How do we know that? So I'll give you an example there's an article that came out, I believe it's a New York Times article, I actually cite it in the book, and it talks about substitutionary addictions. And a heroin addict goes to NA, he kicks the habit of heroin, but in the process of kicking the habit of heroin, he begins to eat M&Ms and chocolate cake and brownies and cookies and, you know, drowning his thirst in Coca-Cola and, and these high-calorie, high-sugar um, substances, you know, uh, food groups. And the reason he does that is because when you're going from uh, heroin withdrawals, your body craves sugar because of some of the chemical process that happens when your body metabolizes heroin, right? So he moved um, from one substance, heroin, to another substance, which was high sugar foods. And those high sugar foods made him balloon up to, you know, 300 and some pounds, you know. Um, and so he just moved simply from one addiction to another addiction, and so, in a sense, he was sober in as much as he wasn't using heroin anymore. But can we really say that he's sober if he's making other unhealthy choices, right? Yep, yep. Does that make sense? Yep, you're swapping one so, for another. Yeah, you're just swapping one for the other. And, and I've seen this time and time again, and I do this too. You know, and I, I suffer with, with scarcity complex. There's never enough. There's never enough. There's never enough. And so, for me, I would just drink, 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 drink to like, push that pain away. There's never enough faith to heal my son. There's never enough faith to heal me. There's never enough faith to make mountains move. And so I just drink that pain away. Well, when I stopped drinking, what I found is when those same questions come, come back or came back, I would just buy a book, buy another book, buy another book, buy another book. Maybe this book has the answer. One button checkout on Amazon. Yeah. What is a one click? You know, it's, you know, I'll I'll take this book. I'll take that back. Something will, something will fix this. And the truth is, um, the problem was not the alcohol. The problem is not the book buying. The problem is the fact that there is an underlying pain point, right? Scarcity for me. And that underlying pain point had to be either dealt with or quenched. And so I did my best uh, to quench it. And so identifying the problem, what is the pain point, is really crucial when we start to talk about addiction. It's not to drink or not to drink. It's not to shoot up or not to shoot up. It's not to click or not to click. Um, The question is, are you willing to identify and deal with your pain? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I love that you, you, you hone in on this on the book that like pleasure is not bad. Pleasure is a divine gift. And this was a clarifying sentence for me at some point I think you wrote look here's the deal here's really how you have to wrap your hands around whatever it is that you are pleasure seeking in life does it lead to your flourishing and the flourishing of others if yeah. if so bingo you know it's dialed in that is pleasure connected to divine love 
Where it gets wonky is when you move off of that. And I think, you know, for some of us, we need like, give me a clarifying statement of where this is going. And for me, it was that sentence. Yeah. So really the underlying premise of this book, you know, is it's a book about sacramentality, right? I mean, people look at the book coming clean, my first book, and they say that was a book about your sobriety and others will say, no, actually it was a book about your son. Hmm. And in this book, people say, oh, this is a step-by-step recovery sort of manual. And really, it's not. It's really a book about sacramentality. And what I mean by that is God has created all things in this world to point to him, to point us to his grace. You know, the fermentation process of alcohol is not accidental. It's created. It's part of the created order of things. And God has given us that process for our good. But if we, excuse me, wow. Uh, So God has given us that creative process for our good. But if we uh, substitute um, the the good, if we abuse the good, if we use the good and and misapply it in ways that harm us or harm others, then what we're actually looking at is uh, addiction, right? It's taking the thing that God gave us and was meant for our good and using it in a way that hurts us or hurts others. We're destroying the sacramentality of the world around us. And that is, you know, I would argue the definition of sin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one little riff I love to take on this is, this isn't the conversation of, is there the sacred and the profane? It's all sacred, which means it's capable of desecration. And, right. and, I, and I think that for some of us, you've got to step out of the dualistic consciousness for a bit to leave that realm of, well, there's good things and there's bad things. No, 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 no. Like it all, you, let, let's begin at goodness. Let's begin at the inherent goodness of, heck, the earth that we've been entrusted um, and what it offers us. Um, yeah, I think you call them what? The gifts of the earth, something like that in the book. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. These, I mean, the, the there's this line in uh, the Catholic Mass, the Anglican Masses, the Episcopalian Masses, when the priest uh, raises the the bread and the wine and says, "These are the gifts of God for the people of God." Right? It's this is the stuff of earth, as Rich Mullins used to say, yeah. but it has been consecrated for the good of mankind. You know, do, take this, eat this, drink this, and and really experience my presence through it. And I think that is really the trick to live in this life in the material world is seeing the material not as something to be consumed or abused or used uh, to numb our pain, but to be used and consumed to really point us to the creator of all good things. That's a good, good word. Um, So the next step in the book leads to what is the pain? Um, And I love how you spent some time with a guy named John Payne of all last names. Um, and he had this, he had this quote that kind of rattled your cage. Isn't it a signaler? Like, and I think I wanted to hear your thoughts on pain and pain being a signal and maybe what is it signaling to us? Yeah. So first of all, John, he, he wrote a book, um, and I, I actually co-wrote it with him. That's called the luckiest man. John was, is a 17, now 18 year survivor of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's unheard of for someone to live this long uh, with the disease. As a result, he's lost all mobility everywhere in his body, except his ability to breathe, swallow and, and move his eyes. 
so he is constantly in a fixed position and in those fixed positions he's very prone uh, to bed sores to thin thinning skin uh, to areas where um, you know his body signals pain hurt this hurts this is painful and he'll tell you that if you get a bed sore that gets infected that you can die in seven days so an infected bed sore can lead to your death in a matter of a week. And so he would say to me, Seth, you know, pain is not a, a terrible thing. It's actually meant for our good. The pain is meant to point us to the place that needs healing. Or in his case, the pain is meant to, to point him to the place where he needs adjustment. You know, if he's hurting in a certain part of his rear because he'd been sitting all day, he tells his nurse, hey, shift me a little bit so I don't develop a bed sore there. And shifting away from that pain, even if it puts pressure on another part, uh, keeps him from, from getting sick and from dying. It keeps him alive. So I think one of the things that we, we have to look at when we're, we're dealing with pain is uh, what is it meant to do? And I think it's meant to point us to the place where we need healing. So, for instance, in the book, I talk about the three kinds of pain. And I break this down yeah. to scarcity, loss, and abuse. And for me, the pain of my life, the great pain has always been scarcity. There was never enough faith when I walked the aisle and the faith healer uh, pronounced that if I had enough faith, I could be healed of my asthma when I was a child. It didn't happen, right? So I didn't have enough faith. Fast forward, I'm in my 30s. I have a sick son who I think is dying and I'm praying and everybody's praying for me. Again, nothing happens. And so there's that scarcity complex rolling back up. It's the place of my pain is scarcity. And so if I step out long enough and look at that pain, I can say, okay, what is true about that? What is true about the pain I'm feeling, the pain of scarcity? And God, can you come into that place and meet me there? Can you come help me deal with that pain, the pain of scarcity of never having enough? Can you show me what's true? Can you show me where you have given me enough? Can you show me where you have given me abundance? Can you show me where you have given me a life that looks like flourishing so that I can uh, actually say I don't have to be afraid of scarcity. I don't have to avoid scarcity because he has overcome scarcity. That's good. And, and you even get in this in the book that truly the emotional pain that is connected to these three, scarcity, abuse, and loss, really is connected to the narrative that's attached to scarcity, abuse, and loss. Um, I think that's a big thing for us to understand here. And I th- you even go deeper on a scientific study of the same part of the brain lights up when you cut your thumb <laughs> as, yeah. as when you experience the narrative of scarcity, abuse, and loss. And not only the narrative, the reality of those two. Yeah. Um, yeah. But talk about that, because that was, that was mind-blowing to me, that the same place of the brain lights up in both yeah. physical and emotional pain. Yeah, so that, that actually comes from the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, who is a, uh, a therapist, uh, I don't know, I, I'd call him a guru for, for my money, but uh, he's a therapist, a doctor, and he works with uh, patients who are recovering uh, abusers um, in, in the Northwest. And uh, what his work indicates and demonstrates is that uh, really – when people have pain, they turn to addiction. He actually says the question is never why the addiction, but why the pain. Mm. 
And as he discusses sort of and, and, and lays out sort of the ideas of pain being connected to addiction, sort of points to and references uh, the fact that there are areas of the brain that in very real ways light up when we experience emotional pain, just like they would when we experience physical pain. So whether that's the pain of abuse, um, remembering your abuser, you know, that causes this great emotional anxiety and fear and pain, or whether it's the scarcity of loss, you know, I lost my mom when I was a kid, or maybe you, you lost a spouse or you lost a, a child. Or whether it's this sort of scarcity complex, there's never enough, there's never enough, there's never enough, that narrative that keeps going. Those are very real emotional pains, but he'll say these are not artistic and metaphorical ways of talking about pain in a very real sense. They are physiological Mm -hmm. because they affect the brain in the same way that cutting your finger does. And I think for me, when I realized that and when I understood that piece of the puzzle, it's started to sort of set me free Mm. like oh i'm not drinking uh necessarily because of all the chemical hooks i'm drinking because of the pain and the pain is really a neurological response to a memory so really what i need to do is deal with the neurological response through meeting with a therapist through meeting with a spiritual director oh i can do that you know it, it it puts it puts the the onus in in it sort of i guess it sort of takes the onus off me of trying to white knuckle my way through it. And it says there are actually ways to deal with this and to get help to overcome these pain points in your brain. Mm -hmm. I even think, you know, in this third section about what is addiction that you in this book, it has helped me remove maybe some of the handcuffs that I feel like are associated with the idea of addiction. When, (laughs) when, when you call it, um, or when you referred to it as seeing addiction as your journey to awakening. Mm-hmm. Like that was a beautiful aha to me because it, it's, a, yes, I'm not trying to remove any negative connotation from the idea of addiction, but what, what if it's trying to tell us something? What if it's the great yeah. way, the gateway to the great aha, if you will? Yeah, yeah. yeah so when I first uh, sort of recognized my problem. I called a therapist and he said, Hey, you need to come in here. Like, don't go to AA. Uh, don't go to, you know, any sort of support group, just come here and meet with me and give me 90 days. And, uh, in that season, he told me two things that were sort of shocking to me. He said, one, I didn't want you to go to AA because I know enough of your story to know that you might've very well walked into AA and never found your higher power because you were struggling with this faith Mm -hmm. issue, Mm -hmm. if you never found your higher power, like you're out, Mm -hmm. you can't make it through the 12 steps. And he said, but the other thing is um, I want you to think of addiction more as, as a spectrum. And I want you to think of it more as getting your relationship, right. Your relationships, right. This was the beginning of my work on understanding the ordering of attachments. Right. But one of the things he would say was, you know, three years from now, it may be true that you can sit down and drink a beer and have one beer with a friend who is, you know, going through a hard time uh, or whatever, or you can maybe sit down and have a glass of wine with your wife to celebrate your anniversary. And that's it. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I, I don't know much, Doc, but I'm pretty sure that you're, you can't say that. I'm pretty sure that's not true. You can't tell me that. Uh, that's not giving it between the lines. Right. That's, yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure you're, you're uh, asking me to, to fall off the wagon. 
Um, but what he was trying to say is if we would start to look at addiction less as a do or do not, um, less as a, oh, you know, you have a problem with the actual substance and more of, hey, let's get underneath that thing and let's look at the pain and let's deal with the pain. We begin to see that addiction is a response to the pain and not just acting on chemical hooks. And of course, that led me to the work of Gabor Mate and others, um, Gerald May, who say like, this is the truth about addiction is it does operate on a spectrum. And if you have your attachments in order and if you have your life aligned towards the right things, like those addictions really do lose hold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, when you mention this spectrum, and I just want to make sure I'm right here, is this where you're kind of giving parentheses to the words addiction and going, hey, this is also a conversation about habits and affection and attachment and dependence. Um, don't just don't just leave uh, addiction over there to the substance abusers. Um, this is 100%. this is all of life. This can this can be jogging for some of you. Yep. Um, this can be theology for some yeah. of you. Uh, I mean, like it's uh, it can. It, it it may not be as socially painful and relationally painful at sometimes, but at the end of the day, uh, well, it was John Ray. Pain is pain is pain is yep. pain. Pain is pain. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, – here's a mind-blowing one. I, I think, you know, theology is the one that kind of does blow people's mind. I do think we can wander down the holes of theology to sort of try to figure out or or, or – you know, give order to our pain yeah, or use logic to get out of our pain or control our pain. Yeah. Here's another one though, that, that I've said as I've spoken about the book and it's, it's mind blowing to people is sex with your spouse. You can have disordered affection. Hmm. Uh, you can have a, an addiction to <laughs> quote unquote air quote uh, to having sex with one human that you're supposed to have sex with because that's what God created it to be. You know, he created us to live together uh, to live together in a family unit and, and in a monogamous, loving relationship um, and to enjoy that. But if you come home at the end of a busy day and you guilt your significant other into getting in bed with you, listen, man, you're just using that person as a crutch, as a way to sort of blow off the pain. And that's not right either. So, yeah, I think as I look at addiction, you know, I'm, I'm really hesitant to even use that word anymore. And I look at it really as an attachment, what are the things that we are attached to the things that pull us away from going to God with the pain? And dude, I still have them, man. Like we'll have them the rest of our lives. And so the goal is to really make sure that in all things, those attachments are ordered under God, that God is the primary, you know, the divine love. And it's not just me calling it the divine love. This is, centuries of, of, of writers, of Christian writers saying like, there is this higher love, this divine love. And the trick to the spiritual life, the trick to the Christian life is to order everything under the divine love. And, and great writers have, have shared the way of doing that. And so everything on that spectrum does or should come under the order of the divine love. Yeah. Good word. I I think, um, I could be paraphrasing here, but like you, you kind of take us on a journey to understand that sobriety simply is about ordering your life, just yeah. having having your life, your affections, your loves 
ordered properly. And for some of you that may go, hey, that word attachment, it's a little too out there for me. I'm not, I don't like, like St. Ignatius, right? I mean, the the guy yeah. that started the Jesuits, um, he, he was dialed into this many, many, many years ago. Um, so don't think that the idea of attachment and crossing through the words of addiction and using attachment is foreign to the Christian household. It's been around for a long time, and maybe it just needs a reintroduction. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, to me, I think that's uh, true, and, and and I'll sort of give a why for that. Uh, over the years, I've run across folks who uh, would say things like, I think I have a drinking problem. They may not say that they're addicted, right? But they would say, I think I have a drinking problem, or maybe I'm, I'm dependent, I'm not really sure if I should use the word addiction. And then there are other people, um, you know, I've had a dear friend who's battled the bottle for years and, uh, there's no doubt he is addicted. He is attached to the stuff, but there's this really gray area with people are like, well, it's not really affecting my work. Well, it's not really affecting my family. Um, I don't like that. I do it so much. I do drink myself to sleep two out of seven nights. You know, is that addiction? Well, I think, to move to this language of attachment and say, what is your personalized experience um, with the substance and what do you need to do to sort of reorder your attachments and get them under the divine love? I think that's a much more helpful way to think about it. So for instance, my friend who struggled with the bottle for years, um, his attachment to the bottle was dragging him away from God. And for him to be truly attached to the divine love, he needs to never touch the stuff again. Like, it's clear. He will tell you he needs AA. He needs a community of sobriety. He needs to never touch the stuff again. But then he also needs to move into this sacramental experience of the world, right? And and he needs to be able to do that so that when he sees a family member having a drink at Christmas dinner, he's not thrown off kilter by the fact that that dude can have one glass of wine, enjoy the goodness of God and wine to the living, and then put it down and not have another glass. Right. So so this is part of his experience of sobriety is to really reorder his attachments to the divine love and to see the world as sacramentally created. There are other people that I've met who have said, you know, I've really I've gone hard for six months on the bottle and they stop and they give it a year. They give it two years and then they come back and they're able to have the beer with a friend or the glass of wine at the Christmas dinner and never you know, really have a second glass or a second beer. Why? Because they've brought that attachment under the order of the divine love. And Ignatius gives us some really helpful ways to sort of have, how to do that, how to figure that out. And uh, that's why I think he's, he's super, super helpful and relevant for today's Christian. No doubt. Um, you know, he was a guy that really brought to the forefront this idea of practices and disciplines. And I think where you take us in the book, is that that's how you wake to the sober way. Um, if you don't have these practices and disciplines in place, you're probably going to veer off course. Uh, but this is why we need these these anchors, these north stars, these rituals, routines that keep us, um, you know, along the path of sobriety. Yeah, and one of those, some of those are, are, are rooted directly in the scriptures, Um, But one of my favorites that Ignatius gave us in his spiritual exercises uh, was this idea um, 
of imagination, imagining Jesus and the disciples with us as we go. And, and this really comes to the fore in his discussion about, uh, oddly, or maybe not oddly, food and alcohol. Yep. And when he talks about eating and drinking, what he says, and this is my paraphrase, but what he says is there are some foods you're not likely to get attached to. You're not likely to elevate those things over the divine love. But as the foods get richer, and as the wine gets stronger, we are more prone to turn those things into salves for the pain. We're more prone to attach to those things and let those things displace the divine love. And so he says, when you go to the table, imagine that you are there with Jesus and his disciples and eat as he would eat and drink as he would drink. And so whether you're addicted to wine, uh, you know, and, and rich food or not, I mean, if, you, if you're the kind of person that has your attachments in order, when you go to the table with a group of friends or with your family, imagining Christ and his disciples at the table with you, imagining the presence of divine love with you, and then saying, because the divine love is here, how should I eat and drink? How should I talk? How should I reflect the glory of the divine love to those at the table with me? That's a way of actually living into ordered attachment. So you know, you know, beer two, beer three, beer four, man, I'm going to start to get pretty fuzzy headed. And at that point, I'm not going to be able to be a conduit for the divine love. Or if I get so gluttonous that I'm sleepy at the table or uh, that I'm, uh, you know, overspending or, or whatever the case may be, like, again, I'm clouding the ability to sort of channel the divine love to those around me. And that really is the heart of living with ordered attachments is how can I live in a way that I can channel the divine love to everyone in the world around me? That's a good word. Good word. So you're telling me that Ignatius was WWJD before it was ever a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody actually asked me that not too long ago, and I kind of cringe. But yeah, that's sort of the deal. Yeah. Uh, in, in its right, in its right sense, he got it. He got that right, yeah. and he said, "You don't need a bracelet." Um, yeah, you don't need a bracelet. Just use your imagination. Um, man. So uh, the book, in essence. Uh, truly is the invitation to experience the divine love. Who who do you invite? When when you type these words and when you reflect back on your journey of putting this into the world, um, who would you invite to pick up a copy of this and uh, take a journey with you? I'm inviting the person who feels like they can never have less than one drink. The woman who sits at her computer at midnight and one clicks her shopping cart full uh, the man who sits at his computer and one clicks himself through a maze of corn i'm inviting uh, the woman who can't stop until the entire bag of oreos is gone and the man who can't stop until the entire bag of chips is gone i'm inviting the teenager who can't stop playing fortnite and the teenage girl who can't stop sending uh, selfies on Snapchat. I'm inviting everyone who finds themselves mired in some addiction, whether it's socially acceptable or not, uh, to come clean, to wake up, and to walk into the divine love and order their attachments rightly. Good word. Love it. And from there, waking gives to waking. Before we go... Talk to me about waking, giving itself to waking. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when I wrote that, um, and I, I think I put the final period on this book maybe about six months ago or eight months ago. But when I wrote that, even even that's changed a little bit. Mm. But but as we wake to uh, certain things, so as I woke to my own pain, then I woke to my addiction. And as I woke to the addiction or the disordered attachment, then I woke to this concept that there, there are tools to like reorder my attachments to the divine love. I, I woke to the fact that there actually was a divine love that wanted to intervene and be present in my life. As I woke to the divine love, I woke to the fact that, you know, there's this great gift that we've been given in the Eucharist and that this Eucharist is not a thing meant to be taken lightly. And as I woke to that fact that, that the Eucharist is not to be taken lightly, I woke to the fact that, you know, I needed to make some changes um, in my spiritual place of and practice of worship. And these things are just continual wakings. I wake to the fact every day that, man, they're there go I, but by the grace of God, there go I in any sort of addiction, in any sort of attachment, in any sort of disordered way. Like it is all grace that I am not in it, that I'm not mired in it today. And so that's the beauty of, of really waking uh, to the divine love is that the, the, the love of God really does bring us into waking after waking after waking after waking. And that entire process of waking is really just meant to bring us home. Yeah. Yeah. And it's lighter and brighter with each waking. Oh man, it is. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's clearer if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there are moments when, uh, you know, this happened to me not too long ago. I got really angry with a, a small group of people. Um, and justifiably so I was, it was righteous, indignant, justified anger. And everyone in the situation would have told you that. And yet I lashed out in ways that were not okay. Why? Because I was attached. I had a disordered attachment to my righteous indignation over God. I was going to be God <laughs> and tell them, right? And so immediately when the moment happened, I was like, oh, that didn't feel right. And within three hours, I'm sending the email saying, I am so sorry that was wrong. And it's not that I'm, you know, some spiritually actualized human being who's perfect. But it's just that, you know, when you wake to the divine love, things get clear. You begin yeah. to see the world and your attitudes and your behaviors and your screw ups um, just with a lot more clarity than you did before. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an invitation to perfection. No. Um, it's an invitation to notice the imperfection and find ways to realign, you know? Yeah. To respond. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, man. Um, Beautiful dialogue. I'm super grateful for you and your work in the world. I hope uh, that this book opens all new doors for you, and uh, I know it's going to make and allow some space for a lot of people to wake up and experience the reorder of divine love. Tell me, uh, when's it come out? Where can we find it? Uh, January 7th, and you can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, both online and in the physical store. Uh, you can find it at your local independent bookseller. So one of the, uh, the the great independent booksellers that's selling this book is Bookish in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So you can go to the, their website, Bookish's website, and order it there. Or your local indie bookseller because, listen, y'all, they need some help these yeah, days. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And uh, for our listeners that want to follow you and your work, where would you send them to uh, check out what you're doing? 
So you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Seth Haynes, or you can go to SethHaynes.com. And in the new year, I'll start uh, back with a daily blog series. I've been writing daily uh, for the last three, two or three months, maybe. And then I took a break for Christmas, a 10 day break for Christmas, but I'm actually going to start up a daily series and see how long I can keep it rolling. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, next time we do this, we're going to do it on a river somewhere. Does that sound all Come right? On. <laughs> yes, please. All the trout. Yes. Um, all right, man. Thanks so much for coming on. And, uh, you got an open door here anytime you want to come back. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car, uh, you allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.